Welcome back to the Super Sapiens podcast, where we explore Super Sapiens metrics, the app features and experience, and how Super Sapiens around the world are driving the next step in human performance evolution. Homo Sapiens, meet Super Sapiens. Yeah, I think that's what you have to strive for. Like, uh, if you think that the time that has been delivered today is the best ever, then it's like, then it's like tricky to find motivation in trying to uh, look at uh, marginal gains and like trying what what we, what can we improve. So I think it's important to have that mindset that uh, uh, of course what we can what we're doing today isn't really uh, the limits. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to the Super Sapiens podcast, wherever you are listening from today. I'm Zylan Fanek. With me is my co-host, the Director of Applied Science and Content at Super Sapiens, David Lipman. David, how are you? Very well, thanks, Zylan. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Another episode I am super excited about follows hot on the wheels of Gustav Eden. Today, we are here with Christian Blumenfeld, Olympic triathlon champion, 70.3 world champion. What a guy, man. Yeah, not a lot left to achieve in the sport for him. Um, I know he talks a little bit about what's left to achieve for him and, and how he stays motivated, which was cool to hear uh, because, you know, as he says, you know, it's, it's about winning for him. So really cool. Yeah, he raced over last weekend actually in Dubai in the World Triathlon Championship Finals in Abu Dhabi. Um, he was eighth over there. We chatted to him as he arrived in Dubai, starting to prep for that race. Um, these guys just race all the time, you know, packed, packed season. And it was interesting what they were saying about how they choose the races, what sort of an A race, you know, what's the big motiva- motivation. And then they still have to do these other races because it falls in... Um, it plays a role in the strategy of what they're doing in the future and earning points for Paris 2024 and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, I mean, so this is obviously uh, the introduction for the Christian episode. Uh, we've, we've just released the Gustav episode and, and you know, they were both very clear on Paris being the goal now. So this racing is now with that view. Uh, and interestingly, they've now finished that racing over the weekend and they're in Taiwan now. So uh, going to see probably uh, going to see Gustav's temple or something similar. Yeah. Uh, so that'll be uh, going home. He's going yeah, home. yeah, his second country, which is cool. And, yeah, just a, a quick shout out to Matt Hauser, who also raced uh, in the World Triathlon Championship Finals in Abu Dhabi and was fifth over there. Matt's one of our ambassadors. Um, he's had a solid season, eh? He's been really good all year. Yeah, he's been really solid, performing at a high level. I think he got sixth overall in the series as well. So that speaks to his consistency as well. Um, so not easy to do. It's It's tough racing over there, that's for sure. I wanted to ask you, I think you are going to love this and are very interested in this. Patrick Lange in Ironman Israel ran the fastest Ironman marathon. He ran two hours, 30 minutes. That is, I think, 3.35 per kilometer pace, uh, 5.43 per mile pace. But the reason I'm bringing it up in, because you mentioned that he did it in the Adidas Prime X shoes. And I saw you running in those shoes and you said they are fast. Yeah, I mean, yes, they are. Uh, so, you know, similar to the shoes we talked to Gustav about in the last podcast, there are no regulations on footwear in Ironman. Uh, the Prime X's were actually made by uh, Adidas, or however you want to say it, uh, depending on who you're talking to and what part of the world they're from. 
to for, for runners uh, to not be legal. They just sort of went, these are the regulations for world marathon majors and otherwise we don't care. We're just going to make these bigger, better uh, and let runners enjoy them and just and just go for it. Uh, and if you look at the world athletics regulations, someone like me could actually run in those in a world marathon major and not have a problem. So I could go run Boston in those and it wouldn't be an issue. It may be an issue for the sub-elite field uh, and I'm not even close to that. And it's definitely an issue for the pros, right? They have to have their shoes checked in. They get them checked. They get them, you know, have to list what shoe they're going to run in, all that stuff. So there are a a bunch of regulations there. But World Athletics actually said to Ironman, don't do this. So I'm interested to see where that evolves to, whether they end up killing the shoe rules completely in World Athletics or not. But um, suffice to say, uh, yeah, he ran in those. It doesn't surprise me he ran really fast because he's a good athlete, right? The, The athletes, you know, need to fill the shoes. The shoes don't run by themselves, uh, but you know, does it nail a, a minute or two off? Maybe. Um, it's, it's hard to know exactly how much benefit it is when I was running. I definitely felt the benefit of them, uh, probably more so downhill to be honest. Um, and yeah, in my jogging, like I couldn't, I was doing a fart like type session. I couldn't jog slowly in them. I was jogging probably 15 to 20 seconds a kilometer faster than I thought I would maybe even 30 seconds. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I just, I go off feel and I'm looking at my pace going like, I'm way too quick here. This is too quick, but but it felt right and I was recovering well. So that's where I felt it. And then on the downhills, I didn't feel it as much running fast, but I'm also the sort of person who needs to run two, three, four times in a shoot to really give a good review of them. And yeah, I'm yet to do that. So I will reserve too much judgment, but they did feel fast and they were fun. So um, yeah. Well, and speaking of your running, the last time we recorded in the previous episode, you committed to running a fast 5k you had a race coming up but now i'm hearing about cancellation or postponement you're getting your hair done you're getting your mustache trimmed off hopefully what's the can what's going on with this pulling out of this 5k so it's it's wednesday night uh so we're recording the monday after we recorded late last week uh this intro for the, the christian episode so this will be a week you know it's a week from now um will be when the episode is released I have a meeting on Wednesday night that's popped up, so I cannot do this uh, 5K on Wednesday night. That doesn't mean I won't do it, and it doesn't mean I won't do it on Wednesday. I'm still planning to run a fast 5K on Wednesday. just won't be in a race around Battersea Park, so I'll probably do it somewhere locally. Um, I have a friend who I might try to twist an arm into pacing me a little bit to try and help out a bit, but um, that's probably a more fair reflection given the last time I ran one uh, was during COVID, so uh, it was just a time trial on it, and I was just trying to better that time, so... We'll see. Um, still hoping to run it. Still hoping to run fast. If I don't do it now, I will do it in a few a little while. I've got a 10K on a Saturday in a few weeks. So um, I'll do that. And, and whether the 5K happens before then or not uh, is up to me. But um, we'll see. The, the goal is still to do it. Unlike you, who's been shirking his gym work. I heard you rode 200Ks just so you didn't have to go to the gym. um i had a very interesting weekend so on friday morning i got a phone call asking me if i could be uh six hours down the road by saturday morning to um, ride in a race called double century it happens every november absolutely love it so it's a 12 person team race and you ride 202 kilometers i've done it a bunch of times now um, if there's one race I would do every year, it's this, this race. But I've been traveling this year, and I just couldn't get into a team. And then yeah, in the team I rode with, someone got fell ill that week, and literally the Friday they asked me if I could just drop 202 kilometers with less than 24 hours to go. It was a, it was a really cool event. Um, but I actually had a question for you. So we took just over, just under seven hours. Um, 
and I was sort of relaying some nutritional advice, everything that you've taught me. So, so I was saying to the guys, like at the 160k mark, we had about 40k's left. Um, we were at a feed zone, you know, filling our our bellies with whatever our support crew had there but i said to the guys make sure this isn't the last time you eat we have 40ks left it's probably going to take us about an hour and a half to go there's lots of climbing coming up and is it true that talk me through this so if you're just sitting at your desk or you're sitting on the couch watching tv what is the percentage that your body is using for fuel when it comes to carbs glycogen versus versus fat and how does that change during exercise yeah, so there's a few variables in here, but coarsely um, at rest or you know relative rest as we are now, um, you'll be using almost exclusively fat. There will be a little bit of carbohydrate used. The things that will modify that are um, things you know like stress or perhaps um, what you've eaten. So your diet in general, but definitely the last thing you ate, the last meal you had will impact this. So for instance, uh, I've got a training session later today. I ate a bunch of carbs for breakfast. I'm probably burning a little bit more carbohydrate now than I would have if I hadn't eaten or if I'd eaten something that was more predominantly sort of fat and protein. So that's the one modifier there. Uh, we've actually got an article coming out that talks a bit about this uh, on the blog in the coming, it might be up by the time this podcast is out, maybe a little while later, talking about my Berlin Marathon uh, carbohydrate on blog.supersapiens.com yes um and it's talking about my carbohydrate loading for uh, berlin so that's at rest and then as you start exercising this slowly ramps up um your amount of fat you can burn the, the rate at which it gets burned will ramp up a little bit and so your proportions will probably stay similar initially so for instance going for a walk um the exception being transitional intensity so if you go for a brisk walk straight out of the chair you're probably going to burn a few carbs for a while while your fat metabolism sort of speeds up and catches up as we transition more to you know let's call it zone two you start to still burning mostly almost all exclusively fat but as we transition into zone three uh, that threshold zone so zone three and a five zone model or uh, zone two and a three zone model you start to burn more carbohydrate uh, and this progressively gets more and more as the intensity increases the modifiers in this will also become any intake you have. So again, if you start piling carbohydrate in from the start, uh, you're probably going to burn a bit more carbohydrate because it's available. And the other modifier will be time. So you store carbohydrate in the form of glycogen. This is in the liver and the muscles, and you'll burn a certain amount of this when you're exercising. Um, these are finite stores, and this is what carbohydrate loading does. It fills those up. And then they slowly get depleted over time. And so over time, you know, seven hours, as, you, as it took for you guys, you're probably burning through some of those stores, which is part of the reason that you need to fuel during your exercises to try and have the carbohydrates available for you to then be able to use them for higher intensity type of efforts like riding up a hill. So was the advice right to eat a lot in the last hour, hour and a half? I'd say given the what I've heard of the team you rode with um, and the fact that they were willing to call you up, it means that they probably weren't so fit. Uh, and so they're probably <laughs> yeah. burning more carbohydrates uh, at those intensities, particularly going uphill later in the day. So it makes a lot of sense. I'm not sure about, you know, I know your carbohydrate loading wasn't great for it. We talked a bit about that and I'm sure theirs wasn't either. So there's definitely a component there where you've got suboptimal glycogen stores. So you probably need to eat a few more carbohydrates as well on that bike. But as we talked a little bit about in, you know, their race day fueling episode, some of this is intensity dependent. And if you're running for seven hours, it's actually not going to be at a super high intensity. It can't be 
Maybe the last 40Ks is when you're going uphill, that'll probably be a bit higher because, of course, everyone gets competitive at the end and you want to finish strong or whatever. But a lot of that riding is going to be probably even zone one in a five-zone model, not even zone two, like super easy because you just you can't sustain those sort of things, that, that sort of high-intensity zone two effort. Um, and that's so a as bit of a... talking, that's, that's literally what I'm looking at now. So I was in zone one for one hour. I was in zone two for three hours, 15 minutes. Zone three, I'm quite surprised. I was in zone three for just under two hours and in zone four for an hour. Um, I mean, the race is over 2,000 meters elevation and I didn't prepare for this, you know. Post Kona seven weeks ago, eight weeks ago, I've been taking it really easy. So it, it started getting more painful to me. Are those power zones or are they heart rate zones? These are the heart rate zones. Interesting. Okay, so that, that may also have a, a, a level of error in there as well. That may not be truly... They may not be calibrated. I was, I was actually, I was pushing. Uh, we had a couple of big, bigger guys in the team, rugby, rugby player type of heavyweights, um, and I was pushing them up the hill. So I think that would have played a big, big yeah, part of it too. That would have done for sure. Um, but as I was sort of saying, that I mentioned there a bit of an oxymoronic statement, which is higher efforts zone two, higher intensity zone two, and, and that's not really, you know, it's a bit of an oxymoron, but. Uh, what I'm saying there is for people who are not so trained in zone two, doing that for an extended period of time can be a little bit difficult to sustain. Um, they may end up having to drop down to a, like a lower part of zone two um, or they'll pop over it. So zone two may not actually be that big in some of these guys who are untrained. Um, so hopefully that gives you some answers. Um, you did mention... So, sorry, yeah? uh, sorry, carry on. I was going to say you did mention the rugby and it was good to get to the game and see that, uh, that win. So sorry to our UK listeners, uh, but it was good to see the box get up there. Yes, Springboks beating England in uh, Twickenham, I think for the first time in eight years or something. Um, but the reason I asked the question was because I was saying to the guys in the team, we have 40Ks left now, your body needs access to the fuel that you are going to eat. That's that's what it prefers and that's what it's going to want. Is that correct? And then one person also asked me, is, is it individualistic or is that the same for everyone that your body is pretty much going to heavily rely on what you are eating now because as you said you have depleted your glycogen stores or you are depleting your glycogen stores well let's put it this way if christian rode with you uh he probably could have done that whole thing without taking any food because he's so well fat adapted um he's got such a high training volume and his the intensity would have been so low for him but if everybody rode at the same intensity as you did and let's say that your zones are correct then everybody would have needed quite a bit of carbohydrate because that's quite a bit of time in zone four zone three uh, so you, you'll be burning a lot of carbohydrates in those zones. So it's unsurprising then that, um, yeah, you need to fuel quite a bit. So where your zones are can move and can change. Generally, we get what they call zonal compression, which means your um, zone one and two get bigger uh, and that you can sustain higher outputs at those zones. That's one of the big things that endurance training gives you. Um, and one of the things that you find that a lot of um, people who are not so endurance trained struggle with. So they'll go out for a 5K run and it's almost always like zone three, four, um, and they struggle to run at a zone two intensity because um, they just don't have a big zone two and they're not used to running easy. Most people, when they exercise, are used to wanting to feel tired and sweaty and stuff when you finish. And, and for those who exercise, even extended periods in zone two, true zone two, you know that you finish and you feel fine. 
to be honest, usually, um, unless it's a super long one. But uh, Renato Canova is a, is a famous marathon coach, arguably the world's best in, uh, he's Italian, but lives in Kenya and coaches a bunch of Kenyan marathoners. And he says, like, you, you should finish easy runs, which is zone one, two, feeling better than when you started them. And I think that's a really good barometer for have you done it. And maybe that doesn't happen for people who are less experienced in zone two. But if it's meant to be easy and like, you know, if you want to call, use the term recovery run, although I tend to avoid that because I don't understand how you can recover by exercising too much like that. But <laughs> it, it's a bit oxymoronic. It, I understand some of the concepts, but it's, it's a bit it's a bit misleading in my opinion for some people. So anyway, point being, uh, you should feel better afterwards uh, in those sort of zones. So that speaks to how easy they are. I was trying to take about 60 grams of carbs an hour. And then we had a rest stop at 115 Ks in and a rest stop at 160 Ks where I took um, a lot more food, like I tried to eat a lot more solids. We had banana bread and Coke and oranges and, you know, just had a proper meal. And, um, according to Strava, I burnt 4,000 calories for this run. Is that uh, accurate or no? Depends on what, you know, you, you can calculate calories a number of ways. Um, there is what they call uh, using METs as a system. So you and I sitting here are probably using 1.2, 1.3 METs. A MET is a metabolic equivalent. So one MET is what it takes to survive. And then obviously as you increase um, your intensity of activity that increases so sitting here using our brains talking okay yeah it's 1.2 somewhere there um, and for different metabolic equivalents um, you have different calorie burns and that's an estimate so that's one method that could be used that may strava may use the other ones are often based on heart rate and these are pretty coarse and pretty rough because um one of the reasons we train is to get more efficient, right you've got a cycling efficiency running economy these things are, are real and that means for the same amount of uh output you have less um energy required so these energy estimates are inherently pretty coarse um i don't they're not particularly accurate I, if you want to use that term it's just they're all estimates and they're very very coarsely done so caloric estimates are very difficult um the way to do it properly is to measure gases uh, so you're literally measuring what's breathed in and breathed out and then looking at that and that's the sort of stuff that um Krishna Gustav do uh, and with Olav and you can get things that do this, but it's very difficult for the average person. I don't even, I don't think I've ever looked at a calorie estimate on anything. I used to, in some of the time I did a little bit of personal training, we used to use cal calories of work on say a bike and we'd say you've got five calories or 10 calories, but that's a, that's pretty coarse. I didn't think that that's what people were burning. Um, yeah. You're breaking my heart. All The reason I'm asking is I just wanted to know how many burgers and fries I can have for the rest of the week. That's all. But You, you, you say that like if I gave you a number, you'd stick to it. <laughs> I would double it, yeah. uh, whatever you gave me. Uh, but yeah, speaking of Christian and Gustav, this episode, we had a really, really nice chat uh, with Christian Blumenfeld. And even when we stopped recording, he said, oh my goodness, that time just went by so quickly. And it's always the... The, a sign of a good conversation. So I hope you guys enjoy this es this episode as much as we did. Ladies and gentlemen, Christian Blumenfeld. Christian is the current Olympic triathlon champion, world 70.3 champion, former Ironman world champion, and the current Ironman world record holder. He's also the first man to go under seven hours for the Ironman distance and is part of the Norwegian hype train. But his biggest claim to fame is becoming the first person in the world to beat Gustav Eden in his lucky hat. Christian, welcome to the Super Sapiens podcast. 
Thank you very much. Yeah, it's uh, nice to be be here and uh, yeah, excited for next hour. Where are you right now? Well, currently I am in Dubai. So uh, it's been a long season. I actually started here in Dubai in I think it was in March, and now we have the short distance grand final in Abu Dhabi in uh, less than two weeks. So. Uh, uh, I thought that rather than going home from uh, Bermuda and stay home for like two weeks uh, and then go to Abu Dhabi, it's better to just kind of stay on top of the toes and coming here to Dubai and do more like race-specific training. And uh, yeah, I think it's too easy to sort of fall a little bit down by staying home for two weeks before such a big race. So uh, yeah, here in Dubai, trying to do the high-intensity training now going into a short-distance race. Yeah, that makes sense. You spend most of your life, you know, between camp and racing. Uh, what's the hardest part about that for you? Uh, what, I, what I miss by traveling so much is actually to not have to deal with the 23 kg limits. Like to have everything you want, like uh, at home, like it's not like you are limited to two bags of 23 kgs. So I think that's, maybe together with the traveling part like uh, uh until you have go through the uh kind of check-in process uh, like checking in your luggage at the airport like that part is something i don't like but like traveling itself flying and uh, and coming to new places and staying away is something i really like and uh, i think the sport is uh yeah bringing me all around the world and i think it's a good thing about the sport like I get to see new places and uh, I just try to enjoy the traveling. Can I ask you a practical question? Like you've got a house back in Bergen, right? Um, when you're away for so long, like do you turn the fridge off? Like who looks at that? Like what's the state of the house when you come back home? <laughs> well, now the status at home is that it looks like a guy who has been traveling for three months and then been home for 12 hours and then traveling again <laughs> for three months and the, and the 12 hours he's home he's just panicking and trying to pack out three bags and bring everything he wants or needs for the next three months into three new bags and uh, yeah that's the situation at home now it doesn't look too organized or everything is everywhere and yeah, you could get a quite a big shock when you if looks you open like up a, the door. Looks like a bomb went off there. Mexico and, war zone. <laughs> and actually, last time I left, I forgot to have that I had a bread uh, in in the kitchen, and that was almost oh, no. uh, walk walking itself way down to the garbage. <laughs> <laughs> you see, this this is the stuff I want to know. I don't care about how you felt. It's in Georgia and what you ate. This is the this is the golden stuff we want to know. <laughs> yes, I always try to make sure that I throw everything that yeah will not survive three months of travel. And and aside from uh, not having to live out of a suitcase, what's the thing you miss most about Norway when you're traveling? Um, the summer days, I think. Like, uh, I think I think it's really nice to train and be home uh, during the Norwegian summer when the weather is nice. And uh, yeah, but uh, also I try to not think too much about what I'm missing, but rather uh, enjoying what I'm getting, what this sport's giving me. Uh, 
And of course, like, yeah, just being home, settling down. And the last two years has been really intensive, maybe traveling yeah, to the extreme. So maybe just to be home for two or three weeks and more settling down is maybe something I've been missing. Because also just to be home for one week is sort of enough to swap bags, but it's not enough time to really settle down. Yeah, for sure. Uh, um, you've, I mean, you do a gazillion interviews and people know your story, but this is the first time you appear on the Super Sapiens podcast. So let's go back to the beginning a bit. How did you get into the sport? I mean, there's a rumor you were a goalkeeper in football when you were younger, weren't you? And then you also grew up swimming. Yeah, so uh, uh, I think as all kids, like you, at least in Norway, you start off with football uh, when you're a young kid, and so did I. And uh, uh, funny enough, with the engine I have and the size I have, not super tall, ended up being a goalkeeper and really enjoyed that. Uh, And on the side of that, I was uh, swimming. And uh, I think especially from the swimming, uh, you do learn from a very young age to train a lot. Like uh, when you're like 10, 11, you already start with like morning practice before the swim, you no, know, before the school. And uh, did swimming and football until I was like 14. And that was like the time when uh, my swim coach advised me to try something outside of triathlon, no, outside of swimming. Uh, maybe triathlon or open water swimming or yeah something outside of the pool because uh, he saw that I had a huge engine I was running really well when we had like a running session with the swimming club but uh, I never really performed in the pool over 50 meters or 100 meters Uh, so he gave me like a list of different events and one of them was a local triathlon sprint distance uh, at Oos, just outside of of Bergen. And I turned up there together with like 31 other athletes. So it's not like it was a massive race. It was just like a very small local race. And because I was too young, I couldn't swim the 750 meters, but I was only swimming 400 meters because of the rules, even though I came from swimming. Uh, So that gave me like a solid gap out of the water and I was caught by one guy on the bike but then I passed him again on the run so yeah won my first local triathlon and then um, at this time I was also more and more uh, quitting running I mean uh, quitting uh, football and becoming more and more into only triathlon and a few months later I was contacted by uh, a guy uh, in the federation who wanted to start up the youth national team. So Stan Gunnarsson, the father to Jürgen, he uh, had been involved with the Federation for years, uh, but never, uh, or we never really had any national teams. And he thought that if we should have any teams uh, qualifying for the Olympics, we had to start early. It, it's too late to take like a, a guy in the early 20s who's been bored of swimming and tried to learn him how to run and learn him how to ride, but rather starting with some youth athletes and really develop them into the sport and give them like 10, 15 years of uh, support towards 2020 Olympic Games. So they started already in the winter between 2008 and 2009. And since then, it's been gradually 
becoming more and more seriously. I think that's uh, something people misunderstand about uh, you and Gustav is how long you've actually been professional or quasi-professional or at least, you know, very, you know, training very intensely. I think a lot of people misunderstand that that's, you know, it's 10 years or more. It's not something that happened in the last five years or something like this. Yeah, that's right. And it's not like just what we've done since, like, since he won this in 2019. It's not like just from there and until now that we have been kind of training together and kind of building this uh, training regime that we're having or like the group and the dynamic. Like we start training together maybe already a little bit in 2012 was the first time we went to uh, training camps to get down to Las Plaitas and Club La Santa together. And uh, yeah, we have sort of seen how uh, each other had been able to develop and take new steps. And uh, it's quite cool to now still have the, or some of the athletes I was training with 10 years ago is still around me today. And I think that's also more important, like to have this social network around uh, in the daily training, because you see uh, when you are training, like growing up from 10 to 15 to 20 years old, like you, people around you tend to just drop off and to still be having those friends that I had 10 years ago still around me today. I think it's really important. So was that the first time you met Gustav around 2012? And then like, if you were racing each other, like since you were kids, like what was that like? Who was faster? Uh, I think first time we sort of met each other was even earlier, like 20, uh, 2008. And I think it was also in 2009 we did, uh, I did Aetfjord mini triathlon, which is like the day before Norseman Extreme. Uh, where they do like 10% of the distance. And then I was racing against uh, his brother, Mikal. So Gustav is two years younger than me and Mikal is the same age as me. So I've been, in the beginning, I was more racing against his uh, brother and I had this uh, battle against Mikal up in Eidfjord where I was first out of the water. He caught me on the bike and I was able to stay on this wheel until it was like 5k left. And then he dropped me with like 30 seconds or so. And we run with like 30 seconds apart uh, for maybe three and a half K of the four and a half K uh, run. And just with like one K to go or something, uh, Mikal didn't know the way uh, to go in the course because it was like not properly marked. <laughs> and that's how I caught, caught him. And I managed to take him in the sprint. So <laughs> That's awesome. So, yeah, so I mean, uh, kind of start start knowing them more like yeah, 2010, 2011. Yeah. No, I was about to say knowing the course is part of uh, it's part it's you be you want in fair and square. That's part of being a professional already from a young age is knowing the course yourself, man. It's a part of preparation, you know. I have to go through the course. Yeah, exactly. So you mentioned uh, you've obviously known uh, Gustav for quite a while uh, and, and, of course, Mikhail and, and the rest of the crew. I'm interested, you know, obviously uh, you both have had some success recently and, and often coinciding with the other person struggling a little bit. How's that dynamic after the race? Is it really hard when, uh, you know, when you've done well and, and maybe he hasn't done so well, like in St. George, or what is that like for you? Uh, I think a lot of people misunderstand it a little bit, like, 
if uh, if I'm doing an awful day, then I feel that it's way better that he's winning than nobody else or someone else. So he's sort of taking the win for the team. Uh, so after the race, of course, you are disappointed if you are underperforming yourself, but you're also like ten percent happy that the other guy won the race instead of someone else. Uh, and um, yeah, it, it's not really too competitive. Like in the training, like we know when to push, when to take advantage of each other, and when to take a pull for the other one. So uh, it, it's not too intense in the training. It's more like we are making sure that we're both uh, on top of our toes in the daily training. In Kona, I met you at the, I brought you your senses at the pro press conference. And afterwards you were talking and you were saying that the one thing you want to do is you want to beat him. You want to beat Gustav while wearing the lucky hat. You've never managed to do that. And is the, we asked him, we asked him about this on the podcast and we'll wait for you to hear that. But is the, is the hat unlucky now? Is, is the power gone? Were you happy to, to beat him? Yeah, of course. Like it was great to take him in St. George, even though, uh for both of us it was a uh, corner that counts like uh uh like you i think you can't really take revenge uh outside of corner and it was but it was good to finally take him in a middle or long distance race because i feel every big battle we have had like in uh in the middle and long he's been taking the win even though i feel i uh, maybe the one who's more often fitter in training so I felt like it was just on time that I showed that, uh, yeah, I, I can be up there and, uh, yeah, like the hat, good to have uh, been winning over the hat, uh, even though uh, both he and his brothers trying to blame it that he didn't finish, so he didn't lose, uh, but I reckon uh, they still lost. <laughs> that's what he said to us. That's that's exactly what he said to us. Um, yeah, but... I've heard it before, you know, so uh, I reckon uh, DNF is even a bigger loss than uh, losing. Oh, that's interesting. I'm going to have to drop this podcast in my friend's WhatsApp group because we have a rule where if you DNF, you didn't lose, you know. Even if you pull out 100 meters before the finish line, you see you're going to lose. If DNF, you didn't lose. Yeah, but, then, but then you're losing to yourself, you know, if you're not finishing. But I, I guess yeah. it depends if, like, if you're injured. It, it makes no sense to to push through or if it's impacting your health for the next few weeks but like just to pull out if you have a bad day uh, i think it's a bad habit but it's of course it depends uh, on what's next up in the calendar like if you're doing a full arm and distance and you're struggling uh, like they, you know, it's not always they pay very deep in the field. And if you then have to do another race next week again to make it up, then of course I understand if people are pulling out. But yeah, ideally, I think it's good to have a habit to start something or or finish something you're starting. Yeah, and after the calendars, how do you decide on a race calendar? What is what's your process? Uh, so for me, it's more just set like a target of which races I do want to win and what like my goal for the season or long term like now the long term goal is to win uh, uh, Paris again and then from there on I just have to see what's required to win there and 
first of all, it's about qualification. So now I have to do the races. That gives me the points that I want to have. Uh, and from there, I try to put in like the, the races that's motivating me. So for example, next year, I do want to do the World Series, but I also want to do the PTO Series and uh, and uh, yeah, combine the uh, both sides of it. And what do you prefer, training or racing? I I'm not sure really. Like uh, to be like one month up in the Pyrenees and just doing hard training is uh, a, that's a great life. But also you do feel that you want to use the bullet you are sort of getting to shoot out for race day and the atmosphere going into like a race in, in corner, like the whole build up and the hype around. And it's also something that's really motivating me and time that I really enjoy, but it's also quite intense. So uh, I like both. Like if you're just training for too long period of time, then you do miss a race. But also if you're racing back to back to back, then you feel that, okay, now it's time to settling down and go for training camp. You you guys really loved Conan. It seemed to be very special to you, and it was like the highlight of your year. Like, we can't change history, but Jan Frodeno wasn't there, you know? Like, what do you think of that? And is there a showdown you hope with Jan in the future? Uh, we will see uh, what's coming up in the future and uh, how their racing calendar turns out. Uh, but yeah, uh, uh, would be nice to be able to race Jan over full distance um, before he retires. Like I've never raced him, and I think it would be a shame to miss it out. Man, everyone wants to see that. I promise you. I will, even if it doesn't happen in Kona, I will personally set up the race in Girona or somewhere. We do. We just set up a race <laughs> for those distances, man. The triathlon world wants to see that, so we hope the stars will align one day, man. Yeah, that would be great. Some someplace warm in October, that would be great. <laughs> and is that? Do you think that's what's needed? You and Jan to go sub seven? Is that the sort of thing to, in a in a race? Um, not really. Like you have also have to put in Gustav there. Like he won Kona, and uh, uh, it's a lot of new guys also coming up. And I think we saw that now with Kona uh, that. The fact that we haven't, or there haven't been a race there in three years on the island, that uh, the level is really increasing now in long distance and it's getting more and more professional. And you saw like the way Sam Lilo was attacking the race. Uh, there is guys now who can really perform well and surprise and uh, kind of understand how you can actually race a full distance rather than just surviving it. So uh, the level is probably just going to increase for next couple of years when people is sort of understanding how to prepare better for uh, a full distance race uh, both when it comes to the training aspect of it but also nutrition wise and being able to stay uh, on top of your nutrition on race day but also on the big training camps so uh, having like the glucose level right for the training and um, understanding uh, how you can kind of play around with your nutrition every for the every training sessions and uh, just maximizing it. I was uh, following on from David's question. Um, a lot of people was, were 
like really impressed that four of you broke the the record in Kona. But I was listening to an interview with your coach Olav, and he said he believes you guys can even go under seven thirty. He believes on the right day, perfect conditions in Kona, you could even go faster. Yeah, I think that's what you have to strive for. Like, uh, if you think that the time that's been delivered today is the best ever, then it's like then it's like tricky to find motivation in trying to uh, look at uh, marginal gains and like trying what what we, what can we improve. So I think it's important to have that mindset that uh, uh, of course what we can what we're doing today isn't really. Uh, the limits, and I think that's also a benefit coming from uh, uh, kind of a new new generation often comes into the sports brings in is that the fact that they see it from maybe a little bit more over ambitious uh, ambitions, and uh, that's just creating it easy to break through. And do you think that generation that's coming out, like where do you think they're going to make the biggest steps forward in terms of the triathlon? Is it going to be the bike? I mean, that's the easy answer, but do you think that's going to be the big change? Good question. Um, I'm not sure. Like on the equipment side, of course, the bikes is getting quicker and the shoes is getting quicker, but, uh, and also nutrition is getting better and better. Like uh, you can take in more carbs than maybe what guys did five years ago by the way you're training and the way you're uh, training your guts to absorb it and for race day and that itself is bringing the level higher and uh, also the intensity control uh, we have more and more sensors that's uh, helping us uh, understand what's happening in the body uh, so so things isn't just by feeling it's not like you have to travel to to corner to collect kind of uh, experience over two or three or four four years and then be able to perform well you can collect data all around the world in your daily training and uh, that's uh, putting you in a position where you understand more of your body and that will uh, makes it easier to kind of bring it up one step further what do you think is something that people misunderstand about you and your training I'm not sure. Like, I think they have a pretty good indication of what we're doing because uh, uh, most of it is out on Strava, uh, basically three sessions per day, every single day. Uh, so I think the ones who see the training today, uh, the data that we're putting out sort of have an understanding, but maybe they don't understand that we had have had this intensity of training and volume for so many years. It's not something we start three, four, five years ago. It's plus years of uh, having this intensive uh, kind of uh, working uh, ethic. Yeah. And you mentioned some gut training and carbohydrate intakes. What's, you know, uh, what does training, or, you know, what does fueling look like on a training day for you? It depends what sort of sessions that I have, uh, because that, that's a tricky part with uh, nutrition that you can't just uh, do the nutrition you're doing in for uh, a race day, because then you have the time to carbo load like two, two days out. And then the day before you're maybe just eating like even carbs, so you're not really filling up your uh, stomach too much with too much fiber. Uh, and then for race day, you're 
carbo loaded, you are full of energy, but you are not too heavy. Uh, but in a training day, you're having the big days coming in, like the days after days for maybe, uh, yeah, four weeks in a row. And there you have to sort of maybe go into a track session with probably a heavier stomach than you're doing into a normal race. Uh, uh, so you also have to use every session to sort of not just maximizing the performance on that single day or single session, but also think about the next session that comes tomorrow. So, for example, a track session, uh, maybe you don't really need to take that energy gel uh, for the last 3K of the intervals, but it's put you in a better position for the swim that comes maybe five hours later. So it's more like having this constant um, understanding of uh, uh, the next session that comes tomorrow or the next tough ride that comes in two days. So, yeah, the overall view. Jeepers. So, I mean, how many gels do you think you're consuming? How many Red Bulls do you think you're drinking in a year? <laughs> Oof, that's hard. Like, uh, it's a lot of sugar. Like, if you just put all the sugars together, I think you would be quite surprised. And I think it's, uh, like, pe people might, if you just look at it, all the sweets we're eating, it, they might think it's quite unhealthy. Uh, but, like, the sugar gives you that energy kick, you know? It's... Uh, it's what's getting you through that session. And then I sort of training, you try to get more like the more traditional healthy food in uh, because you want the nutrients and you want like longer, uh, like more pasta, rice, potatoes uh, outside of the session. But it's not like you're out and eating uh, potatoes when you're riding. So, I but, mean, so uh, here's a Here's a question to both of you. So I love sweets. I have an incredible sweet tooth, but I struggle to lose the belly fat I'm trying to lose. And I, I mostly blame my sweets. And I, I always go on these diets where I'm going to cut it out because i got an Ironman in six weeks or whatever. But should I then be eating those sweets? Like, for instance, in, if I'm in the pool or on the bike or whatever, and then I'm still getting my sweet tooth craving, but then my main meals should be healthier meals. Would that be a good way to go about it? Well, let's put it this way. When you're yeah. training like, christian you can eat like christian until then you probably can't eat like christian is the first thing i'd say to you <laughs> so that's the first thing and look if you're gonna have to eat the haribo to get through the swim fine but yeah eat like uh eat like an adult outside of that though <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think what you do in the training like uh first of all yeah, like uh, your appetite isn't normally that's good that you can kind of gain weight while riding. So if you're riding three hours, you will most likely, no matter what you're taking on board, uh, as you're riding, you will lose calories. So it's more what you're kind of packing in around the sessions. Yeah. And no, is that an strange. active, is that an active thing you guys do is to push a bit extra because of, you know, big training days mean you don't have a lot of time to eat. And so, you know, I've only got so many hours outside of training. So try and fuel up a bit more during training. Uh, yes, both, or basically, yeah. So, because uh, we do want to put in the long rides, but we also want to have like uh, the the swim session that we do in the evening in our mind. So it's kind of looking at the twenty four uh, hours, like in one picture. So here's another practical question, and you are trying to get enough calories in in the day. Practically, where are you getting that food from? When you're in Dubai, for instance, you know, are you grabbing food? 
um, at the hotel or are you grabbing it on the road to the pool session? Like practically where, where are you getting the food from? Oh, yeah. So traveling worldwide, I think it's important to every time we come to a new place, we try to go to the supermarket and just buy like some basic stuff, like some bread, Nutella, or maybe some ham, orange juice, uh, getting some uh, Red Bull in and uh, yeah, so some basic stuff just so we have some snacks in the room so we can always fill up in case we're getting hungry and then uh, uh, yeah, trying out some local uh, pasta, Italian restaurants, Indian restaurants, uh, but it's good to have like always some snacks in the bag uh, and uh, have it planned like the day planned ahead. I actually noticed that when I was with you guys in Sierra Nevada, when we did some stuff, some filming, uh, Gustav gave you some, uh, I can't remember what it was. It was like a carb cake or something. He had some there and he was like, he offered it to you. And it was, uh, it was cool to see, cool to watch that. <laughs> yeah. So normally we have, uh, like, uh, in the bottom of our backpack is like full of energy, uh, bars or, uh, the gels just to have like emergency gels. So, yeah, if I run an MTA of energy in the pool, then it's just to uh, go to the bag and then refill with some uh, some sports drink and then, yeah, keep going. How how different is your nutrition um, between Kona versus St. George, for instance? Like, how, is, there, is there a different amount of carb intake per hour or is it pretty much the same? It's pretty much the same. Like for race day, you mean? Yeah, yeah, for the race day, yeah. Oh, so, okay, yeah, so uh, in terms of carbs, it's uh, pretty much the same power, but the big difference there uh, between Hawaii and St. George with temperature. Uh, Hawaii, super humid, warm, and you are just sweating through. So there, um, yeah, you're probably drinking like two liters or so per hour uh, for close to eight hours, and... It's more like getting used or being able to drink that much. But in St. George, half of the distance, super cold, like four degrees, and your belly is sweating. <laughs> so there is more about making the energy drink thicker. So uh, you're still getting the carbs in, even though you're maybe drinking a third of the total volume. Um, and maybe going a little bit more on gel rather than just sports drink. That, that was going to be my question. Yeah, because yeah, Gustav said on the bike in Kona, he took his carbs on um, in, in liquid form. But in Utah, it wasn't very hot, obviously. But David, you carry on. Yeah, I was going to say, so do you modify um, your strength of the... Like, so you use Morton. So do you modify your strength of the uh, drinks or do you change from gels to liquids or do you do both? I do both. Uh, but I... I haven't tried to mix more than two 320s in one bottle. So that's also a little bit like the limitation. <laughs> you, you, can't, you, you can't make it too thick. Uh, so, and it's getting maybe too much syrup. So then it's maybe better to have like a, a gel and then just squeeze it down with a little bit of water. Uh, but but I, I think it's always important to know how much, how many carbs you have in the bottle. So you can do the math yourself or that you do it maybe the math in advance of the race. So you know that, uh, example, if you're estimating the bike is going to take you five hours, then you know how many carbs you need for those five hours. Because uh, 
you, you can't take the same as I do for an Ironman if you're racing five more hours then you have to adjust accordingly so you have to do the math like how many hours you're going to be out on the course and if you look halfway through if you are uh, 20 minutes ahead of schedule then maybe you could take a little bit less if you are 20 minutes behind schedule then you maybe will have to even take a, a, a second gel just to make it up for that 20 minutes the bike for me in Kona was uh, six and a half hours. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then, then, then you need like uh, yeah, fifty percent more uh, carbs than what I took. Oh come on! Man. <laughs> Why do you have to say it like that, man? Come on! <laughs> Very good. Very good. Um, so. Do you carry spare nutrition, like an emergency gel or something like this, uh, in case you drop something or anything like that? Or do you just use your um, athlete aid stations as with extras there? Um, both. So like for my bike, I have uh, the drinking system in the frame, and then I have two bottles behind the saddle where, I have, uh, where I'm planning to have uh, the nutrition that, I'm, that I want to drink. And then I have uh, the of the the box for energy gels is filled up even though i might not plan to take any gels so just in case i'm missing or one of the bottle uh, falls off then i know that okay then i have to take five extra gels to compensate for that missing bottle for example and then i just uh, add on with extra water in the aid stations so that's how you'll go sub seven is not carry all the spare gels <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that that save you for like uh, that cuts off your time by like forty minutes to not yeah, carry yeah, your gels. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, man. Um, and what is your favorite training location? I mean, you mentioned Nice. You're probably gonna say France. I mean, your vlogs from there it does look incredible, and that's the one moment where I wish I had talent to be a professional. So that could be my life as well. <laughs> Well, it's hard to pick really. Like Spain, France is really good. Uh, spent a lot of time in Forma and also been in Sierra Nevada for most of the winter. We were also in Thailand a few years ago doing the heat prep there. Super nice for cycling, even though it, the roads are busy. The, it's still very nice roads. Uh, so it's hard to pick one country. And that's why I also like to move around a little bit and change locations, change roads, and uh, yeah, um, if I have to pick maybe south of France, I would like I would like to test out the aix le in France. It seems very nice on the map and the pictures from there, like they have a nice lake and some good mountains around, so uh, maybe south of France. And do you do you guys get input into where you guys go on training camps, or is it all Olaf and and Adam? Uh, so Olaf might be the one who is kind of planning in terms of where he wants to go in terms of the altitude, uh, but also of course me and Gustav is the ones who's doing the training. And if if we say that uh, that place isn't really good enough for cycling, isn't motivation, and uh, like like the scenery is, isn't that nice and we just get bored of training there then uh, it's also going to impact the training that we do so we try to have uh, good places where we do enjoy to travel to do the work 
Do you have a favorite training session? Ooh, I like um, like the track sessions can be super nice when you're like feeling good and fast and really pushing through. And especially the ones with more like race specific, maybe brick sessions where, where you do like bike to run and it's maybe five to 10 minutes of uh, well above race power and then going on to 2Ks uh, around and above race pace. That's maybe the favorite ones. We, we sort of go maybe to three or four bricks. So maybe bike to run four times. And the last one is maybe five minutes as hard as you can go on the bike and then sprinting 2K. And that's sort of giving going, that's the same kind of mentality that I have when I'm racing, like going into the same zone, like, okay, now it's 2K all out. I'm tired, but still it's only 2K left. And the same, uh, I'm thinking when I'm racing, okay, this is like I did on training last week. It's 2K all out. It isn't too long. It's actually something that I've, you know, as a non-triathlete, I've often thought was interesting is how few brick sessions people do. They do a lot of running and a lot of cycling and they do very few bricks uh, traditionally, which is weird given everyone tells me how hard it is to run off the bike. So doing a session where you spend five or six times going bike and off makes a lot of sense to me. But, uh, but yeah, do you set up your training and next to the track there and then just get out on the track and go for it? No, I like to be... Depends on the the weather. We like to ride around and then hope that nobody's uh, stealing my shoes and uh, my stuff at the track. <laughs> <laughs> but but also I think uh, doing doing brick sessions uh, has more benefits to it. Like you have you know, instead of like doing a track session where you're often only doing ten or twelve k, you can certainly do ten k and then combine it with forty to sixty minutes of high intensity on the bike. And the cardiovascular stimuli you're getting there by increasing the duration of the session and also the way of working with your nutrition is very, very race specific to sort of give yourself good habits there to be able to last the sessions in the same way you're doing in a race. That's really cool. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, we do. Uh, I'm part of a triathlon squad, and often close to Ironman, we'll have a Saturday where we do bike run, bike run, bike run four or five times. The first time I did it, nearly killed me. Now I absolutely love it because I know I walk out of that weekend feeling so fit, man. And also, I think it's help you understand what uh, race pace you can go for, hmm. uh, because if you're only training the run by itself, then you might get like this. Uh, uh, you're thinking too optimistic. Like you believe you can go almost in the same pace as you can do after swimming 1500 and riding for 40 K. And then suddenly you expect to have the fresh legs that you had on the track session, you know? Uh, so by doing the same sort of duration in training, I think it gives you more realistic uh, view on what you can achieve on race day. I actually wanted to ask you, and I don't know if the answer is going to be interesting or not. A week in Kona, a week before the race, I saw you guys, you were out training. And I went back on Strava that evening and I saw you had done like 180 Ks on the bike or something. And then the next day you did like 40 Ks. That's like a week out from the race. What are you trying to achieve with a session like that? That would kill most people. Yeah. Yeah. So actually going into Kona, we didn't do too much race pace or race pace duration like where we did like four hours uh, at high power so we were waiting quite 
a time before we started doing those long sessions. And so the week before we first started with like, I think it was Friday maybe or Sunday, no Saturday, Friday or Saturday, we did the, the swim and bike where we did like the whole swim course. And then we did 170 K of the bike course at and around the race pace. And then the following day we did like hundred K on the, on the bike and 40 K or something on uh, race pace. And, uh, again, it's about the uh, practicing the nutrition in and, uh, also getting a realistic view on uh, what we think we can achieve on uh, in the race and uh, yeah just yeah, doing the training you know I think if you are starting tapering two weeks out you will change your muscle fiber to be more inefficient over a long distance race so uh, I guess it's quite important to keep the volume in until the last few days and then if you're there you can sort of start uh, loosening up on the volume you've mentioned obviously you had race simulation sessions but you've and you've mentioned intensity uh discipline and, and being disciplined with with gustav and keeping each other honest is it hard to not race those sessions when you're in kona about to race in two days time you're on a simulation event you're both trying to you obviously win is that hard to be disciplined at that point not really i find it quite easy uh and the reason why is that uh, you are just so focused to get the best session you can get to be able to win the race. That's really matter. Like uh, uh, nobody cares who of us were pulling the most in that 40k run, or who was sprinting the last 2k to just to drop the other guy. Like uh, it's all about who got dropped in the energy lab. <laughs> with 10 or 15k to go and unfortunately that was me on the race day um so you know we, we both know that like two weeks out from the race that it's more about uh, getting the session in that we need or that you need yourself and then uh, if you can help the other guy that's just great because uh, uh you get the, the help back later on um, you've talked a lot about technology and, you know, having a lot of markers that's feeding back the, you know, different environments you're training in and how your body's responding to that. Do you want to talk a little bit about the Centauri technology company that you guys have launched then? Yeah. So, uh, it's not like just over the last few years, but it's maybe been five or six, uh, years since we started like, uh, trying to get involved with with the different uh, technology partners uh, and you both being available for them to do a lot of testing and prototyping and also being in a position where we can get help from them uh, improving what we are doing. And uh, I think it was over this winter, we start formalizing it a little bit more to uh, both knowing what we can expect from each other in terms of uh yeah days we're spending uh developing their products uh, and also what we can expect getting in returns in in terms of uh times of their employees like we have uh people from the different uh, companies coming helping us uh giving us special treatments <laughs> in, in in returns to us being a kind of their um 
testing rabbits to develop their products to be the next level. And it's quite fun because when we, when you spend so many weeks and years basically doing the same, like it's swim, bike and run, you always try to make it more interesting and twisting it around and together with the Santar Tech and the partners there, we are sort of flaring up the, the daily training. Awesome. So on that, how much input do you get into Red Bull and their formulations? <laughs> the formula, the, the F1 or the, no, the no, taste. The, the taste of the Red <laughs> the Bull. The taste. <laughs> uh, I feel I don't need to give any feedback, you know. They do it quite well. And it comes uh, with the summer good. edition, the winter edition. And uh, first of all, they have the 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 regular one, which is the the most important one, you know, that's one that gives you the, that extra kick you need for race day. No, Very that good. is, uh, Red Bull got me from the energy lab to the red carpet, man, got, oh, for sure. <laughs> um, speaking about technology then, can we talk about Super Sapiens a little bit? What's like, what have been some of the biggest learnings that you've uh, got out of you getting on Sensor and using the app? Yeah, so I think it was in the, winter a year and a half ago that uh, uh, we started testing Super Sapiens just before it got launched and uh, I think uh, often when you're training and like if you can't measure it like it's very hard to both learn from learn from it and also get progression and uh, uh, even harder what's happening inside of your body like to understand uh, how your glucose level is uh, changing depending on the intensity of the training you're doing, the duration of the sessions and the meals you're putting in and also getting a better awareness of how the meals you're both putting in before the session and the timing of it to get ready for, uh, to get the right values before an easy run or a tough bike ride. Uh, I think it's been helping us to really bring the training like a few percentage higher, but also uh, having the recovery meals quicker enough to get ready for that second or third session of the day and uh, playing around with the numbers, like uh, going into some session with the lower glucose level to see if it's going to help us, uh, maybe not for that single session, but in long terms, or if I should try to target a higher level to be more having like more available energy uh, for the session and also to see how the glucose level is uh, impacting when I'm uh, putting in the intensity in the training because uh, you do want to see like that it's responding like if you're going up in intensity uh, without getting any sort of increasement in, in glucose it could be an indication of uh, uh, lack of energy available. And what's the biggest change you've made since using Super Sapiens? It's more the the size of the meal. Like you, you do try to get like more the meals uh, more constant in, so we are more maybe maybe not purely much more, but more like having the 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 meal better planned. I would say so having the recovery meals quicker after the session and also uh, getting in the carbs more in, in the long rides. Um, Christian, we're going to get to the rush round, the very important part of the question. 
of this interview, the most important part of this this interview. But I wanted to ask you about St. George because obviously Kona was a big disappointment that you really wanted the win there. You still did well, very well. I mean, people's opinion. Like, what did the, the a few weeks later then the victory in the, just becoming seventy point three world champion mean to you? The to be honest, uh, it was like good to kind of get that green mark, check it out, like been there, done that for the 743 title as well. It's been the one I've been missing. But <laughs> like, yeah, it's still like, it, it was Kona that was the most important race in October and I lost that one. And uh, maybe it's like a plaster on the sore winning uh, 70.3, but it's still a sore underneath the plaster. And that's a feeling and it's on. Un- of unfinished business on that island. And is that the motivator then? It's it's about winning on Kona on the island? Because you've as you said, you've you've pretty much won everything else and, and you race to win. Yeah, of course. Uh um yeah, even though I I still recognize St. George as uh, an Army World Championship title and uh it's a unique to be able to win outside of Kona. But it's more like uh, trying to just use whatever motivation you can find and just, you know, use it as fuel. And uh, uh, seeing those images of uh, Gustav crossing that finish line and Sam coming in in front of me, of course, fires up. And uh, seeing that finish tape being lifted by someone else than yourself is something I hate to see. And uh, yeah. The fin- yeah, the finish shoot. I just want to cross it the first. And what what are your thoughts on uh, the World Championship moving around more frequently rather than just staying on Kona like it has historically? Well, uh, I guess it can be good. Like uh, if you want to grow the sport and get um, more people involved, I guess it can be good to move it around. And uh, um, especially like... Uh, the two days format this time was uh, a big success, and I think the women deserve to have their own day. And uh, uh, if Kona can't host those two days, then I think the sport has maybe been growing too big for being on the island. And uh, uh, I guess moving it around will maybe be a better opportunity to grow the sport. I must say, like, this was my first time in Kona. And when I got there, I was like, oh, okay, is this it? You know, I come from a coastal town. We host Ironman African Championships. We have a pretty special coastline, too. I'm not that impressed with Kona. But I must say, as time went on, you know, as the race went on, then I could understand. I don't know. It's, it's like crept up on me where I was like, oh, okay, this is special. Okay, this is Kona. Like, I get it now. It took me a while to be there to get it. But at the end of the two weeks I was there and at the end of the race, I, it was finally like, okay, I get it. This is Kona. This is just something special about it. Yeah, the race week and the atmosphere, like running up and down LA Drive and yeah, being on Queen K, even though it's a highway, it's, uh, it's part of the, the history that's been on the island for so many years. And uh, uh, yeah, the atmosphere around is really unique and I was just, yeah, happy to have been there now. Uh, but if you want to grow the sport, 
I'm not sure if it to keep it there forever is the right decision or to rotate and be there every second or third or fourth year is the best thing. And Very so what will happen, I know that we're going to see you there with the flowers on your head the, at the finish line one day. <laughs> Sorry, David. You were yeah, let's hope. Let's let's hope to see get those pictures in. <laughs> I was just going to say you mentioned the women having a separate race. Uh, are you? I guess, and, and you've obviously been well publicised to be out on the course supporting. Is that something you enjoy doing? Uh, being a fan of the sport and supporting uh, other athletes. Yeah, of course. Like uh, when you're racing yourself, you do really appreciate the people who's coming out and supporting, and uh, also it's good to just be able to watch some races and uh, support the, the ones who is racing when you can. And uh, uh, yeah, it's uh, just, just cool to, to watch and uh, to see. Man, I, be, I love that about triathlon. Like I've been fighting for equality in women's cycling, particularly for years. I was part of a women's pro team for four years, Swiss team. We raced in Berger in the world championships. Actually, we were on the podium in a team time trial over there. That was a pretty cool, special memory. And then they are starting to do triathlon the last four or five years. I absolutely love the equality in terms of, you know, equal prize money, um, particularly in the past and 70.3 women getting their own race day. It's so cool to see the sport doing that. Man. Let's get to the all important rush round. This is going to make you sweat now. We'll start with an easy one first. Uh, what's your nickname? Do you have a nickname? It's uh, KB or it's Blue or it's Christian. Uh, I don't really use Chris. It's either Christian or Blue or KB. If someone calls you Chris, no go. It's no. I, I do re I do respond, but that's not, not that's not really my nickname. Okay. Um, and when you use the Super Sapiens app, do you scan over or you scan under? I'm an under scanner. Oh, no. Oh. Uh, disaster. Oh. At least Gustav was team over. David and I are both team over, man. <laughs> and how do you take your coffee? Strong. Many. Very so I'm, good. I'm, I'm, not really, I'm not really into like the quality of the coffee. Of course, a good one is good, but I just need a lot of coffee in, in the morning. So I'm you can do like uh, eight, eight espressos in a, in a cup. That's like oh my goodness. the right one. <laughs> I, I'm just happy to hear that you've got Gustav drinking coffee finally. Because last time I went to see you guys, he didn't drink coffee. And you said it was because his belly was soft because he's from the wrong part of Bergen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but now, now we've been like getting him like stronger, you know? He thinks that if he can, if he can handle a strong coffee in the morning, he can handle uh, race nutrition on race day. Yeah. <laughs> Makes sense. Makes sense. And what was your uh, glucose score from St. George? Um, highest was like 180 something and, uh, and lows 170. So it tends to spike race uh, and then sort of stabilizing at just around 145. Gotcha. That's impressive, man. Um, and then your favorite priming meal, your favorite carbo-loading meal. Do you have one? Pasta. Well, it doesn't just need to be pasta. It can be also be like Indian chicken tikka masala, a good garlic naan bread. Um, yeah, but also pasta. 
pizza can be good, even though the cheese might not be the best for carbo loading. Yeah. And what does race day breakfast look like? Uh, normally very plain. Uh, orange juice, coffee, bread with maybe ham, cheese, and uh, maybe Nutella. Uh, that, that's like the good thing. You can find some, uh, some bread and Nutella wherever you are in the world. Uh, and the same with orange juice and coffee. Yeah. And how long before the race is that? Normally, I'd, like short distance, I do like three, three and a half hours and before. And the tricky thing with short distance is that it often is like a 4 p.m. race start. So then you need to put in like a second meal as well. So you may no normally eat maybe breakfast at eight and then you do maybe an easy run. And then another meal, maybe at your room, like 12 or one o'clock. And then you kind of go on sports nutrition until the race and then uh, for the race. Uh, but for long distance, like Ironman, where you have to race 6.30 in the morning, then you maybe wake up 3.30 and just early enough so you can be able to get the <laughs> stomach system going so you can go for toilet uh, before the race. So then I maybe eat like... Two and a half, two and a half hours before the race. And how much bread in a Nutella would that be, like before an Ironman? That's like four slides with Nutella, four slides oh, of bread, and a coffee, and uh, a couple of cups of coffee and uh, Rebel the first thing just to wake up in the morning. <laughs> and uh, but but like what you eat in the in the morning isn't really the most important. It's more what you've been eating as you've been carbo loading like the day before and the the day before the day again. Yeah. And post race, after the race, what's the thing you want to eat the most? What do you go for? Oof. Burgers, French fries, pizza, uh chocolate smoothie, ice cream, yeah, mm. McFlurry. Mm. Awesome. Awesome. Did you go all out? Would you would you have that after Kona, even though you know you have St. George coming up? Did you did you go all out a bit? Well, the thing is, after an Ironman, even no matter what you eat uh, the race evening, you will still be in minus that day. And the same, like, you will just be the hungry the next day and combination of uh, two bad days of sleep, smashed, sort of feeling, not sick, but more like out of balance. I guess you can, it's more about how much can you actually eat uh, instead of the opposite trying to stay yeah, sort of healthy, you know, it's more getting the carbs in and proper food in and not just candy. Cool. Thank you, Christian, and, man. And, 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 and also when you've been racing eight hours on just uh, sports nutrition and you're going to, you, you do go as high as possible with uh, as, as, as much as you can get take in, I guess you don't want to go for sweets straight after, like then you want some more proper food because you haven't, you had a small breakfast suddenly like 10 hours ago and then you just want some food. Yeah, you're right. Like I, I was staying with a Super Sapiens team at the Super Sapiens house in Kona and my friend Jabu and I, they were hosting us at the end of the race and you know, I just wanted to go to sleep and they're like, don't you want to eat? And I was like, no, no, I don't want to eat. But Jabu was like, yeah, he was hungry and they made some nachos or something and then once I saw the nachos and smelt it, my body was like, yes, I have some. Thank you very much. Like, and we just yeah, scoffed it down, man. 
Um, but, 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 but even even nachos isn't really too much uh, carbs, is it? No, it's no, more no. like just volume, and yeah, I would go for something more heavy. I think. No, the next day I went all out. Once my my stomach was a little upset on the run in the race, and the next day I went all out. Like, yeah, actually the next week probably, if I'm honest with myself. <laughs> yeah. Cool, but thank you for your time, and we don't want to keep you. We don't want to take uh, advantage of you and take liberties. You've been very generous and sharing with us, and yeah, hope you enjoyed this hour, man. Yeah, thank you very much. It's been great. Thank you so much, Christian. Looking forward to uh, keeping track of you, and and hopefully get to meet again soon. For, uh, and for the record, we have to tell the listeners that you were 15, 20 minutes early for your podcast with us compared to Gustav, who was about 45 minutes late. So you're the more professional one, man. Yeah, that's true. You know, we are living on island time. Isn't that what we say? <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you, Chris. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. There we go. The Olympic champion, gold medalist, the 70.3 world champion. We just spoke to Christian Blumenfeld. Just a, an hour hang, David. How was that? It was good. He's a really, I mean, people see him or hear him in the media, right? Like us, like on other podcasts or on TV. And as somebody who hung out with him a little bit in Sierra Nevada briefly, when I was there to grab some content, I, he's the same guy. Uh, he very much is the same guy. Just a lovely dude, uh, very interested in other people, and uh, yeah, couldn't couldn't be nicer. I was interested to hear you start in sport, you know, as a 14-year-old um, swimming and then by his coach trying to, um, to being told to try a different sport and the, and the value of that and how that has actually been the trajectory, set, set the trajectory for what he has become as an adult. Yeah, I think this... I mean, there's there's lots of things here. There are some sports uh, that are doing the opposite of what he's talking about, right? Which is re they're repurposing talent later in life. I know in Australia this is a big thing. So they take athletes who may not necessarily be have made it Olympic Games perhaps in a sport, and they repurpose that talent. They they put that athlete into another sport because they have obviously abilities and mindset and the things that you need. And, and there's been a lot invested in them. So there's definitely a repurposing of talent that happens. But what what I wanted to talk about with this was just the the vision from the Norwegian Sporting Association to pick a bunch of kids who are, you know, between, I assume, 12 and about 16 and say, like, we need to succeed in 2020 and then put many, many years into them and be cool with it being a 10-year process and needing to support them because, you know, it's fine to look at him and Gustav now and say, oh, they're earning all this money and they're racing and they're winning and they got the sponsors and whatever. It's like, yeah, but for a long time they didn't, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you support him in his development stages to be able to train? You know, something else I wanted to touch on was was just the volume of work they do, right? And everyone sees it and goes, oh, that's magic. It's like, well, it's not. They've been developing that for years. But without this support and without the vision and the view towards them succeeding in 2020, right? It wasn't 2016 they wanted to support. They were being scattered to perform. It was 2020. So they have this long-term athlete development view. They build their volume slowly. And all of a sudden, they can race, you know, Kona and, and St. George in six weeks and perform. That's insane. That's really, really different. And they're really redefining what we think is uh, possible. So um, that long-term view is so important. It's invaluable, that support from the Federation. And I think uh, it was in an ITU World Cup where all three of them, Christopher and Christian, were, was with Casper. Uh, 
um, on the podium, three Norwegians sweeping the podium. And I think that moment probably was the culmination of vision of years and years of hard work, like you say. Um, but I guess it's also not just the volume of training. It's also you were asking him about the discipline in the training, you know, like doing what you meant to do on a particular training day. Yeah. I mean, this is huge. This is such a big thing is do the session as it's prescribed. Don't go faster. Don't go slow. Like do the, the work you're meant to do. Um, and that shows there's two aspects to it. There's um, an understanding as well. And you can hear he really understands training when you ask some questions around loading weeks out of, of Kona. So he understands that. And they ask questions of Olaf. I've heard those questions. I've, you know, It's well publicized that they ask the questions and they start to learn. So it's important that they understand so they buy in. But it's also then uh, that then allows them to buy in and be disciplined and do the things that Olaf asks, right? Because the easiest thing in the world is to not do the program that's written, right? And their training is not is uh, is not magic, you know. They're putting it on Strava. There's a reason they're not fussed about putting it on Strava. It's because they know that it's it's how it's done and it's that it's done specifically for them, not just that they're doing the sessions, right? You can't copy their program and go be them. There's lots of factors that go there. Yeah, lots of factors and adaptability. I was. I think I heard him speak and I heard Olaf speak on another um, podcast to where let's say they have a training program six weeks out, you know, but within those six weeks, they'll adapt depending on how the body is responding and what the body needs and they adjust um, depending on the feedback that they get. Yeah. And I think um, that, that allows you, if you are adjusting and you're constantly tweaking, that's probably between that and the volume that they've developed, the tolerance to that volume is probably why they can not have many days off. And uh, and avoid injury to some extent, right? I don't want to uh, put a the commentator's curse on them or anything, but you know, the best there's some interesting research in track and field looking at predictors of performance, and one of the best correlates to performance is injury-free time and consistency of training. And if that's the viewpoint, if that's what success looks like, then you train very differently to uh, trying to knock any one session out of the park, right? And I think people don't know that, or don't understand that, or don't buy into that, but you know stacking weeks and months and years of training is the way to be successful fundamentally, particularly in endurance training. I was interested to hear about the multiple brick sessions that they have. And as you alluded to, you were surprised at how few brick sessions triathletes tend to have in their training programs. Yeah, well, look, I, I speak from a point of uh, my lens is more strength and conditioning than it is uh, triathlon coach. And so my view is, this is the bit that everyone complains about. Why aren't we doing more of it? Or, mm. you know, then you can take a really physiology view, which is is the way Christian explained it, which is just you can accumulate more work in that session by doing some some brick sessions, so some biking before you run. And you can run under significant fatigue, right? An all-out five-minute effort uh, on the bike and then running, that's different fatigue to run under. And that, you know, that might be the genesis of some of their strength in their running. Uh, and that, that ability to really come through people and, and run fast late. So uh, that's cool. And look, he also spoke of his love for training. And mm. it sounds like he likes those brick sessions. And look, to be honest, compared to doing one thing once, you know, just long ride or ride with some intensity or run or run with intensity, I think the mixing up of it is is a novel stimulus that helps you love training. And I think that's really important as well, because if you don't love training, it's going to get old quick. Yeah, and he was talking about his favorite training session, a track session, and also where 
in the in the final where it gets hard you can actually visualize the race and you do that in training and i think in multiple in in a lot of sports the last 10 years the visualizing of the course of the match of the track um, has become really important because you know you and i often talk about the psychological effect of of training and how sometimes that is overlooked and i think uh, that's something that he honed in on and something that yeah works for him it gets you to push yourself to that limit and you're literally visualizing the last two k's of the race where you might have to go full 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 gas yeah and knowledge of the course is helpful as well. They do a lot of this. They turn up early often to go check out the course. And I, it makes a huge difference that, you know, that's, I, yes, I ran well in Berlin and I didn't know the course, but I knew the last little bit where I started to really pick it up and those sort of things, right? And I knew, I knew some of it. Um, you know, Boston, I'd run a lot of the course. Uh, I'd run a lot of the Rotterdam course. I'd run all of the Amsterdam course. So understanding and knowing the course helps with familiarity because yes, you can look at your watch and know where you are. You can see the kilometer markers, but it feels different when you're running somewhere that you know and you understand, uh, and it feels a lot easier. So there's a lot of value in that, that I think, again, it's it's a psychology. It's the psychophysiology of it. So I think um, that is underdone in people. Can you all go out and do a full training session on the course or full Ironman in a couple of days before like they did? No, but there are ways and means to do it. You can drive courses. This is really common. So, uh, you know. So there you go, Christian Blumenfeld. Um, what a treat to have him on. If you enjoyed that episode, please share it with a friend and rate our podcast. Also, we'd love to know what you would like to hear more of on the podcast. So please feel free to email us, david at supersapiens.com. It could be a guest you'd like to see on the podcast. It could be a topic you'd like us to discuss. We are also on Discord. Join our Super Sapiens Discord channel. That was a real treat. I cannot believe this is my job. David, thanks for working on producing that and making it so enjoyable. And yeah, shout out to Christian for just such a fun hour and just a, a chat among mates, man. Yeah, it was good. Just a Sunday morning bike ride with him, except he's <laughs> pulling us along. <laughs> True. And I'm eating Harry Bows. <laughs> uh, thank you for, for tuning in and we'll catch you on the next one.